In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Uh, tonight, our Bible study from Psalm 17. Psalm 17. The title of this psalm, A Prayer of David. And there are four other psalms that have the same title, Prayer of David. Psalm 86, Psalm 90, Psalm 102, Psalm 142. This doesn't mean that these five psalms were written by David, but means other titles were like a psalm of David. But here the title is a prayer of David. A psalm means a song, but these five psalms uh, more like petition, supplication toward the Lord. David would not have been a man after God's own heart if he had not been a man of prayer. David, his life was a life of prayer as he said seven times every day, I praise your holy name. So it's clear that David is the author of the psalm and it appears that he wrote this psalm when uh, King Saul had carried his persecution against him to the highest, when he decided to kill him. And that's actually after leaving Jonathan and when David went into the exile. But other scholars, they say we cannot assign this psalm to a specific time in David's life because all his life were full of persecution. So there are too many possibilities and possible events where this psalm connect with the general circumstances. Psalm 17 is remarkable for its trust in God, as we're going to see. And the trust in the glorious heavenly hope and also absence of any confidence in oneself. Fathers believe that from Psalm 16 to Psalm 24, this series of psalms represent a complete messianic collection because each psalm of these psalms from 16 to 24 offer a clear prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that Saint Jerome applied all what was mentioned in Psalm 17 on the Lord Jesus Christ. And other fathers like St. Augustine counted all what came in this psalm, Psalm 17, as concerning the Lord Jesus and his people, the church, the body of Christ. St. Augustine says, this prayer must be assigned to the person of the Lord with the addition, addition of the church, which is his body. So what's written in this psalm applies about the Lord and applies also to the church, the body of Christ. This psalm is just 15 verses. From verse 1 to 5, 
the plea of the righteous. From verse 6 to 10 to 9, the petition for protection. From 10 to 14, defeat my proud and arrogant enemies. David is asking God to defeat his proud and arrogant enemies. And the last verse, 15, praise and final victory. So let's start from verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. So, as it is common in many psalms, David prayed from a time of crisis when he goes through a difficult time. And the urgency with which David called on God to pay attention to his petition suggested that he was in a very difficult position. That's why he began his appeal to God by declaring the justice of his cause. That's why he said, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Hear a just cause, O Lord. So he's appealing to the justice of his cause. And with a righteous cause and a just appeal, David appears before the righteous judge, God, confident in the integrity of his motives toward God and toward man. David assumes that he is persecuted unjustly, and this is true regarding King Saul, when actually he was chasing David to kill him, and also when Absalom, his son, was chasing David to take the kingdom from him. So he assured God he was speaking the truth in what he was about to say. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. So he is saying the truth. And unless he had been convinced of this, he could not have called on God to justify and to absolve him. A good conscience is the key condition of earnest prayer. And David, in verse 1, he mentioned many characteristics, like his justice, his innocence. But he is affirming that all these characteristics are not from deceitful lips. Are not from deceitful lips. So he is saying the truth. But as St. Jerome and St. Augustine said, if you apply verse 1 to the Lord Jesus Christ, actually, he is the absolute perfect righteous one. And his lips have no deceit, as St. Peter said in 1 Peter 2:22. So here, if we apply verse 1 to the Lord, as if Jesus Christ is speaking to the Father, and saying, here a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer which is not from 
deceitful lips. So the Lord intercedes by his own righteousness for the sake of his people. And the Father listens always to the intercession of the Son. The Lord Jesus is the one who entreats. He prays as our high priest. He prays as the head of the body. He prays for the sake of the church. And he regards the case of his people as his personal case because we are his body of his bones and of his flesh. That's why when he appeared to Paul before his conversion, told him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He didn't tell him, why do you persecute my children? Or why do you persecute the Christian? But he told him, why do you persecute me? In Isaiah 63 verse 9 we read, in all their afflictions he was afflicted. So the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for the sake of the saints because in all their afflictions he was afflicted. Verse 2 Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. So David is urging God not to delay the judgment, but speedily examine his cause and give sentence in it. David did not want a vindication that came from himself. In the story of David and King Saul, in the long struggle with King Saul, David had several opportunities to avenge himself and to set things right himself and to kill King Saul. But he refused and waited until vindication comes from the presence of God. Also David wanted God to see the things that are upright. He is asking God to examine him. And David is convinced that God will see that David has been involved in upright things. And therefore, God will pass judgment in favor of David, giving David the justice that he needs and that he deserves against his enemies. David knows his heart and his ways, that he is upright, but here he is asking God to judge him according to what God finds in him. Many of us are afraid to be judged by God, but David was not afraid to be judged by the just God, because he believed that his cause was just and he is asking God not to let him fall under judgment of man that's why he said let my vindication come from your presence you judge don't let men judge 
verse 3. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. So in verse 3, David says that God has proved his heart. God tested his heart like one tests metal with fire. And God found the hearts of David genuine and blameless. It takes some level of patience and maturity to ask God to test one heart's, one's heart in this manner. David asked and allowed God to test his heart, and therefore he came with confidence in his prayer. He claimed that in this in the present conflict, either with King Saul or either with her son Absalom, in which evil people were opposing him, he had done nothing worthy of their hatred. He's innocent. So David here, not asking acceptance by God based on his own righteousness, but he want the acceptance based on the finding of God, when God tests his heart. And God has examined David's attitude as well as his actions. And God found no basis to condemn David. Also, David mentioned before God that he made strong commitment and vow not to sin. As he said, I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. I have purposed that in my mouth shall not transgress. But he said in this verse also, you have visited me in the night. What does it mean, you have visited me in the night? God is the searcher of heart. And though God has no need to make use of any means to know our heart, because already he knows what's in our heart. Yet in order to make what is in our heart known to people, he proves and tests his children by adversity or by other means as he did with Abraham and as he did with Job. Also the people who are tested by God, their experience and their spirituality grow into a different level. God may test us by adversity, but also he may test us by prosperity and by mercies given forth in a wonderful way. To see actually how we would react. Are we going to forget God when everything in our life is prosperous and when we enjoy his mercies? So God does not test us only by adversities, but also he may test us by prosperity, as he tested the Israelites in the wilderness, as we read in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Also, 
Sometimes God is testing us by false prophets and false teachers around us to see how we would react. Are we going to deny our faith? As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 3. So, God can use several ways to test us. Adversity, prosperity, false teachers around us to know our heart and actually to expose our heart to the others. And when God tested David, he found him a man after his own heart. Also, the Lord Jesus Christ was tested in his days of incarnation on earth. And he was found faithful to the Father who appointed him. And Jesus was found a man approved by God. But what does it mean, you have visited me in the night? David is saying, my obedience to you was not just outwardly. When others can see me during daytime, but even in night, when no one can see me, you tested me and you found me blameless. So our spiritual life should be a lifestyle that goes 24 hours a day. Otherwise, we'll be hypocrite. If in front of people and during daytime, we appear righteous, but at night when no one sees us, then we can conduct in a different way. Also, the psalmist may have meant to offer his heart at night when he leaves all those around him and reveal to the Lord the depth of his heart and his good intention away from people. That's why David used to awake in the middle of the night to praise the Lord. And also before the dawn, he used to rise up very early to praise the Lord away from people in which he actually exposed all his heart and the depth of his heart before the Lord. And then God can see the sincere integrity inside us. When God tested the heart of David, he found no animosity or injustice even against those who hated him. When King Saul died, and when his son Absalom died, David grieved uh, severely on both of them, although both of them persecuted him harshly. So God saw in David's heart real eagerness. the psalmist also may wish to declare how easy it is for people to judge him wrongly by misinterpreting his words or his deeds. 
But God who searches the heart, God judged him according to the depth of his heart. It is as if he is saying with St. Peter the Apostle, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And the psalmist here has become absolutely prepared to offer his thoughts, his words, his deeds, everything for an accurate examination from God. And David mentioned specific areas where he was innocent. For example, his speech. He said, I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. So David's speech was innocent. And control of speech, control of our words, is a visible evidence of what is truly stored in heart. As the Lord said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 4. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the path of the destroyer. So he said, I did not imitate the works of men. I followed the words of your lips and I kept myself away from the path of the destroyer. So he rejected the world's way, which is a visible evidence of his obedience, as he said, according to the word of your lips. I am obedient to your word. Verse 5, Uphold my steps in your path, that my footsteps may not slip. So, verse 5, there is confidence and faithfulness to the way of God. That's why he is saying, uphold my steps in your path. And again, this is a visible evidence of sanctification. To walk in the steps of the Lord. Being set apart wholly from the world unto God for his purpose. So, the word of God had shown David the steps he was to take. He walked according to the commandments of God. And by saying, uphold my steps in your path, means I am asking your grace, I am asking your strength to enable me to walk in your path, lest my footsteps may not that my footsteps not not slip he kept himself from the path of destroyer but this is not enough it's not enough not to walk in the steps of the world but we must walk also in the path of god must spend our life in obedience to the will of god maybe some people will say David here 
sounds like self-righteous or self-sufficient. But David actually is stating that he is innocent and certainly not worthy of the persecution that he is facing from his deadly enemy. That's why he asked God to test him, to try him. If he is self-righteous, he wouldn't ask God to test him. So that's why David feels confident that God will protect him from his enemies. Verse 6, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. You can see here the confidence. For you will hear me, O God. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Confidence that God will listen to him. So after David stated his innocence and his loyalty to the Lord, he is asking God to hear him. And you can see here how prayer had been the constant practice of the psalmist. And David's calm confidence in the midst of crisis is encouraging. Why he is calm? Because he was confident that God will hear him and God will deliver him. Although his problems were not gone yet, but he is confident that God will hear him when he calls. Why he is confident? Because he had many experiences. He experienced God with Goliath. He experienced God when he was attacked by the bear and the lion. So experience is a great teacher. He who has tried the faithfulness of God in hours of need, then this person will have great boldness in putting his case before the throne of God. Then he said, incline your ear to me and hear my speech. The psalmist here comes to his first prayer in verse 1 and thus sets an example to us of pressing our request again and again. God wants us to be persistent in our prayer until we have a full assurance that we have succeeded. Verse 7, show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand, O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Show your marvelous loving kindness. The word implies a signal intervention on his behalf. So God, David is asking God to intervene. And the need is great. That's why he is appealing to the marvelous loving kindness of God. Trusting that the power of God is greater than the need. And we can see this marvelous loving kindness of God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who offered us salvation that's free, special, distinguished, everlasting, unchangeable, sovereign. David is exposed to approaching danger, whether from King Saul or from his son Absalom. And if God did not work miracles for him, he must fall by the hand of King Saul. That's why he is expecting from God to show his marvelous loving kindness. Sometimes when we pray, we expect from God just moderate loving kindness. We make our prayers, our faith, and our expectation small. But David here shows us a pattern to expect and ask from God marvelous loving kindness. If you are going to meet a king of a president, you will not go to ask something small from him. If you are going to ask something from president or uh, king, you need to ask him something great that befits his position. That's why David, when he asked God, he asked for marvelous loving kindness. David clearly affirmed that God only saves those who put their trust in him. Or you, who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. So we need actually when we pray to have this trust in God. Verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. No part of the body more precious and more delicate and carefully guarded than the eye. And of the eye, no part more peculiarly to be protected than the apple. So David here is saying, keep me as the apple of your eye. Keep me as the apple of your eye. And this figure of speech is used several times in the Bible. Like in Deuteronomy 32.10, Proverbs 7.2, Zechariah 2.8. So David uses the phrase, apple of your eye, to describe something precious, easily injured and demanding protection. So as if David saying to God, keep me, because I know I am valuable in your eyes, but also I am fragile. I need protection. And with this figure, David was asking God to keep him in the center of his vision. Keep me at the apple of your eye. Not to let your eye go away from me. And not to let me out of your sight. But keep your eye on me all the time. And the second metaphor is beautiful when he told him, hide me under the shadow of your wings. This is another powerful powerful figure of speech. And the idea here is how a mother bird shields her young chicks from danger 
by gathering them under her wings. And this metaphor is repeated three times in the book of Psalms. Psalm 36, 7, Psalm 57, 1, Psalm 63, 7. Even the Lord Jesus Christ used this metaphor when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you refused. So the Lord even used the same metaphor. So these two phrases are powerful pictures of God's care for his people. Then in verse 9, David explained from whom he wanted protection. He said, from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. So two groups here, the wicked who oppress me, deadly enemies who surround me. So he wanted protection because the threat was real. He did not face only oppression that made his life difficult, but also he faced deadly enemies who wanted to kill him. That's why he said, those who oppress me and my deadly enemies. But in the midst of these real threats, oppression and death, he did the right thing. He prayed. For us, the believers, the mortal adversaries, those who oppress us, like people who persecute us because of our, who are Christian. But the deadly enemies are the deadly sins that lead to spiritual death. So when we pray, we ask God to protect us from those around us who persecute us externally and from the deadly sins, from the deadly enemies within us that will lead to spiritual death. Verse 10. From verse 10 to 14, he starts to describe his enemies. Verse 10, they have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouth, they speak proudly. So David here begins to describe the deadly enemies who oppressed him. They were insensitive. Fat hearts mean insensitive. And spoke proudly. Self-indulgence has hardened their feeling and their heart and clouded their souls. Their fat hearts, they have closed up their hearts because of wealth and great prosperity. So because of their wealth and prosperity, they develop hardened heart and they closed it. There is no compassion, there is no mercy. They were prosperous and consequently self-confident in their money, in their riches, and they became proud. They became 
prideful and inconsiderate of others. That's why he said, they speak proudly. Boasting of their own power, boasting of their own richness, and of the great things they had done or would do. Indeed, riches and self-indulgence are the fuel upon which some sins strengthen their flames. Pride, wealth, sensual desires were the sins of Sodom, as we read in Ezekiel 16:49. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So, in verse 10, he described them how they are merciless and prideful. In verse 11, he said, They have now surrounded us in our steps. So his enemies surrounded him in his steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth. So in verse 11, David sees himself as a city surrounded from all sides by enemies. And enemies have set their eyes with one purpose, which is through the innocent down to the ground. Their eyes are focused on that goal to actually throw them down to the earth. Uh, That is the same way the lion would do to his prey. So in verse 12, he said, as a lion is eager to tear his prey, unlike a young lion lurking in secret places. So their enemies were like these beasts. These men are waiting for the right time to destroy David and his fellow innocents as the lion lie in wait to destroy his prey. So David described the dangerous, wild, beast-like actions of his enemies. And he saw himself as a prey chased by a hunter, or as a prey the lion bloods to devour. This verse, we can apply it on the Lord Jesus Christ. When Judas followed him into the Garden of Gethsemane with a group of men and soldiers, and the Lord was surrounded by these wicked men, and they took him to the trial, And then they took him to the cross and hung him upon the cross. Also, this verse can be applied to the body of Christ, to the church, to the believers, who are troubled from every side. 
and also they are afflicted by the corruptions of their hearts, temptation of Satan, persecution of the ungodly people of the world. I want you to notice in verse 10, he spoke with singular. But now he starts to speak in plural. He said, they have now surrounded us in our steps, not me. After he was saying, like in verse 8, keep me at the apple of your eye from my deadly enemies. So after he spoke uh, in a single person manner, starting from verse 10, he followed the plural. Some of the church fathers see this change from single, single person to plural as a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ declaring that the adversary does not desire Jesus himself or alone but also he desired to, de- to devour the entire church of God, all the believers, the children of God. And the Father think the enemies here are those who have crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, whose fat heart were closed against every influence for good or knowing the truth. You can see how Pilate different, several times tried to spare Jesus from their hands, but they closed their hearts completely. They had the flat and narrow heart, and their mouth, they uttered arrogance. Instead of praising God's name, they said to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And the more furious the attack on David, the more intense was David's prayer. Because when the attack is severe, there is nothing else to do except to lift up our eyes and to ask help from God. David's eyes rest solely solely upon the Lord. That's why in verse 13 he said, Arise, O Lord, confront him, my enemy, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. That's why David feels that God has to arise and the work should be done at once. Arise, O God. He's asking God to prevent the execution of the conspiracy, the design, the plan of the enemies against him, to stop his enemies from their attempt. David declared his dependence on God to protect him, not because he was afraid of such lion-like enemies, because David, when he was a boy, he killed bear and a lion. But David asked God to arise because he wanted to see the enemies, the enemies of David, mainly they were enemies of God. So he wanted to see the enemies of God to be defeated by the hand of God 
not by the hand of David. That's why he said, Arise, O Lord. And when God arise, David wants God to crush his enemies. Cast him down. Cast my enemy down. When the, ungod- when the ungodly are cast down, the righteous will be delivered from their hand. When King Saul persecuted David, Saul often missed the goal when King Saul thought that he can kill him for sure. But who delivered David from the hand of King Saul? It was God. The same way how the enemies of Christ were disappointed when they heard about the resurrection of Christ. They thought that they had gained their point when they put him to death. But on the third day when he rose, they were disappointed. He told God, Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down. Confront him with his wickedness and bring him to his knees. This should be done by the sword of the Lord and by the Lord's hands. When God intervened by his sword and by his hand, David will be delivered. But what is the sword of God? The sword of God is his word. Because as we read, the word of God is sharper than two-edged sword. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. Verse 14, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world. So he's asking God to deliver him from men of the world who have their portion in this life. They don't look to eternal life. They look to earthly inheritance only. And whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. So God gives them prosperity. But instead of glorifying God, they actually harden their hearts. They are satisfied with the children. God blessed them with the children. But they taught them their wicked ways and leave the rest of their position for their babes. So they don't leave them virtues. They don't leave them uh, godly principles. All what they care about how to leave money to their children. So he described them, he called them men of the world, have their portion in this life, whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with the children, they leave the rest of their position for their babes. So David recognized that one characteristic of his enemies was that they looked much more to this life than they did to eternal life. They are altogether worthy. Their views, aspiration, hopes, longing are bounded with this life. 
That's why he called them the sons of this world. And the Lord used the same expression in Luke 16, verse 8. They may have satisfaction in this life. Their belly are full. They have children. They have prosperity. They have numerous offspring. But they educate them the same wicked principle. They will leave to them a large earthly heritage, but not godly virtues. And most probably, their children will spend this heritage as their fathers have done, or perhaps more wickedly. In the beginning of the psalm, David presented his own good spiritual standing before God. Now David presents the evidence of the offender's bad spiritual standing. So he's making contrast. God tested David and tried him and he found him innocent. But these people are far, far away from God. So this contrast presents a case of why David needs and is worthy of God's protection. I need your protection, O God, because my enemies are very wicked. And at the same time, I trusted in you and I lived innocently before you. So I I deserve your protection. Last verse, verse 15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. The sons of the world, they have abased desires, low desires, looked only on this life, not to eternally. But David has different aspiration, a spiritual aspiration. Their satisfaction was in their wealth and family honor. But David does not envy their happiness here on earth, but his hopes and happiness are of another nature. Their blessings are not for an instant to be compared with so he's not comparing himself with their prosperity, with their satisfaction, with the inheritance that they have. But his happiness, I will see your face in righteousness. David's happiness is in God's presence. I will see your face in enjoying communion with him and all the blessing that flow from this communion with God. But in order to feel the presence of God, I should live in righteousness. So his greatest delight was in God, not in the temporal things of this world. David was confident not only of life after death, but that he would one day see the face of God in the life after death. That's why he said, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Awake in your likeness 
about the resurrection of the dead in the second coming of Christ. I shall be satisfied. So, to see God here on earth, it is fulfilled by faith. But in heaven, we will see him face to face. And David knew that the transition from this life to the next life, like awakening. That is the resurrection. Also, verse 15 can be interpreted not of David's awakening, but that the glory of God is awaking or appearing, which would afford an infinitely greater satisfaction than worldly men have in worldly things. So, people of the world may have their satisfaction in temporal things. But when the glory of God shines on us and we feel his presence, this actually will bring greater satisfaction and greater happiness in our hearts. In the time of opposition from godless people, ungodly people, whose whole lives revolved around material matters, but the faithful followers of God can enjoy the fellowship with God. And this fellowship with God in the midst of tribulation will be the source of our comfort and our consolation. The followers of God, they look forward to the divine deliverance and to see God one day by faith here on earth and face to face in heaven. So David's hope lie in a continuing relationship with God. And in the same way, this should be our hope, a continuous relationship with God, fellowship with him. David found comfort in his relationship with God in this life. And this is superior to what the wicked enjoyed. Also, we too know that in addition, when we die, we will go into the Lord's presence in heaven. And from then on, when we go to heaven, we will be with him eternally. And this is actually our greatest comfort and our greatest consolation. This actually concludes Psalm 17 from the book of Psalms. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.